Hello, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I am the other host, Aaron Mette. How are you doing, Aaron? Good. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I just saw a very good series. I'm really, I'm really projecting a lot. I feel very energized right now. But yeah, I want to share with you and viewers of the show that I just basically binge watched the show Beef. Have you seen it on Netflix? I've seen nothing. Uh, okay, what's great. it about? Uh, I don't want to give too much away. At first, when oh, I saw Ali Wong. Yeah, Ali Wong. Yeah. I've heard about the show. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's good. It's, it's called Beef, and at first, I thought it was about two people who like worked in a in a a slaughterhouse or some kind of meat factory, but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's uh, about two people who become intertwined, an unhealthy dynamic between them, a kind of a, a rivalry, a bitter rivalry. I don't want to give away too much, but it's great. It's with Ali Wong and Steven Yuan, and uh, who is in, uh, he's in Sorry to Bother You, which I know you love as a film. Boots Riley. Oh, of course I love that movie. Yes, okay, I, yeah. I do love that. Sorry. It's, you know, again, there's too much content. Out too, there much content. too much yeah. content. TMC. And, uh, yeah. I'm not saying that there's, I mean, and by the way, I hope we're not breaking the strike by even talking about content right now. Well, I think we don't have writers, content. so it's okay. Yeah. And we're not, we're not advocating anybody uh, option a film right now. So I guess we're not no. breaking the strike, but yeah. I mean, if you want to option useful idiots, colon, the film, mm. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> Just wait a couple weeks until the strike is done. Okay, so you won't be a scab. No, it can't uh, be a in scab. Selling yeah. The rights to useful idiots, the movie. Okay, good. No, yeah. 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 Those coveted <laughs> rights. Those coveted <laughs> rights. So, should we start with our four basic food groups, which is, of course, the four categories into which all news stories can be divided, which is Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? What do you got for Dems? For Dems, it is World Press Freedom Day, or uh, it was this week, and Antony Blinken. The Secretary of State celebrated it with an event with the Washington Post's David Ignatius, but they got interrupted by Code Pink, who reminded them that Blinken and his Democratic administration are not as on the side of press freedom as they like to claim. In particular, I'm curious whether you've uh, been able to talk... Excuse us, we can't use this day without calling for the freedom of Julian Assange. The Biden. Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy, guys. Not one word about journalist Shereen Abdul Akhli, who was murdered by the Israeli We're here to celebrate. Freedom of expression, and we just experienced it. Let me let me continue, uh, uh, Mr. Secretary, to, to ask you about Evan Gershkovich and your efforts to get him free. Well, first, let me continue by ignoring these examples of the U.S. violating press freedom by imprisoning Julian Assange and backing the Israeli government uh, in its murder of Shireen Abu Akleh of Al Jazeera. By ignoring all that and going back to our talking points that can be used against our enemy, Russia, because right. they're, of course, jailing the Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gorshkovich. And uh, I mean, Code Pink, man, you can't Hats say off. enough yeah. uh, of appreciation. You, you, you can't say enough words of appreciation for them. It's They constantly put themselves on the line to raise these vital issues that everybody else ignores and uh, right to Blinken's face. And I love how he pretends to be cared about their safety he's like he says to his bodyguards like take it easy guys like yeah, yeah, right. Easy. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah right yeah yeah 
hats off to Code Pink, hats off to Medea Benjamin being dragged off stage as she's dragged so frequently because she does these interventions so frequently, which is amazing. And they really uh, have a lot of uh, bravery and I really admire them. And what I do like is that, you know, Code Pink, they wear pink. That's kind of their thing. They're called Code Pink and they wear pink to kind of play on, I think, like gender roles and because they're an all women's organization. But I like the fact that unintentionally, it looks like almost they were coordinating with this event. Because if you look at the color code, uh, there's actually a pink thing on the stage. World Press Freedom Index is on the, in, on the, the screen in pink. So it almost looks like it's a code pink event. It's great to color coordinate your protests. It, it's yeah. always helpful with effectiveness. Yeah. I love how also the Washington Post they it looks like they cut the audio for a little bit there yes, they on did. purpose is that they didn't know how to handle someone expressing their point of view on press freedom right so their and the us hypocrisy on that so their response is just to silence it and then i guess maybe they realized that that wasn't a good look to like silence right. people on world press freedoms day so then they let the audio come back in yeah but, yeah, I mean, just stunning hypocrisy for pe for people in this government to pretend they care about press freedom when they are persecuting the world's most famous journalist, and right. uh, and also and also the other code pink uh, the other the other code pink protester, the one that wasn't Medea Benjamin, I'm not sure who that is, but he was bringing up the murder of Shireen Abu Akleh and how the U.S. backs the Israeli government that killed her, and that's also. A great reminder as well of how just uh, hypocritical the U.S. is about right. press freedom. And they didn't do anything about her murder. And she was a uh, Palestinian-American. That's right. Which, uh, not that it should matter. Obviously, Palestinian non-American journalists should also not be killed for the crime of reporting on the occupation. But the U.S. doesn't even live up to its alleged values of protecting American citizens. And if you sign up for our Thursday throwdown at com, we have a lot more coverage of White House press freedom oh, yeah. hypocrisy. Yeah, it's, it's very, laugh with us so you don't cry because it's it's pitiful. So for Republicans suck, let's just play this video. It speaks for itself. And it's an example of Republicans really, 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 really fucking sucking. Last fall, Deborah and Lee Dorbert were excited to be giving their son Caden a sibling. But at an ultrasound when Deborah was 24 weeks pregnant, the doctors had terrible news. The baby has no kidneys and you're, you have little to no amniotic fluid. The doctor said the baby was sure to be stillborn or die quickly after birth. And Deborah was at an increased risk of a potentially deadly pregnancy complication. I broke down crying in the room. In many states, doctors offered to terminate such doomed pregnancies. And that's what the Dorberts wanted to do. But their doctor said it wasn't possible because of a Florida law passed last year that bans nearly all abortions after 15 weeks. The moment the law came out, I think everyone was scrambling to try to figure out what exactly was that language intended to convey. Doctors found in violation of the law can face heavy fines and even prison terms. The Dorberts had two choices, leave Florida for a termination elsewhere or take the pregnancy to full term. Even though it's legal to leave Florida to get an abortion, the Dorberts said they were scared they'd get arrested. So Deborah stayed pregnant. I continue to feel this baby move and knowing that I'm going to give birth and watch my child pass. 
When told about the Dorbert story, Florida Representative Jenna Persons Malika, a sponsor of the Florida abortion law, sent CNN this statement. We are providing mothers with the resources they need to raise healthy children, empowering doctors to help their patients make informed decisions, and shifting the conversation to valuing life. So that's Republican suck for forcing someone to carry a fetus to term so she can deliver the baby uh, who is condemned to die a couple of hours after birth or within the hour because it's born with no kidneys, which they knew. What can you say to that? That's just horrific. It's horrific. It's so cruel. It's so cruel. And that politician at the end, how dare she say that she's like working, prioritizing women's health? And, you know, this is where like you can't fault someone for being a single issue voter on this. I mean, this story alone is enough to make you I can understand why someone could just no matter how awful the Democrats are in so many ways. Just if you have a party that is pushing stuff like this, I could totally understand why somebody would want to do all they could to prevent that, because this is just it's straight up. I mean, cruel is too is too mild. It's um, it's torture in many ways. And it's uh, it's how should that how can a politician force someone to go through that? That's just unbelievable. Yeah. We are providing mothers with the resources they need to raise healthy children, empowering doctors to help their patients make informed decisions and shifting the conversation to valuing life. Absolutely not. You're not doing any of those things. These people should be facing protests like outside of their their door of their homes every day. It's awful. So, yeah, that's my Republican suck. All right. For isn't that weird? Uh, this happened recently at a concert of the L.A. Philharmonic. Apparently, someone in the audience had a full body orgasm. Perfect timing. (laughs) Apparently, there's some debate, though, over whether it was a full body orgasm. So, for example, this is a headline from the L.A. Times. A full body orgasm at the L.A. Philharmonic. Witnesses offer conflicting accounts. So apparently the concert goers are debating whether or not it was a full body orgasm. So who knows what the truth is. But uh, what we can say is that classical music really is a wonderful experience. And everybody who has the opportunity uh, should should take it because you might just have a full body orgasm. Uh, apparently it was Tchaikovsky's fifth, which I guess is very, um, very moving. Mm. Reminds me of when when Harry met Sally, and she's like, "I'll have what she's having." I'll have yeah. the Tchaikovsky she's watching. Listening yeah. to, watching, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that indeed isn't isn't that weird. So, for isn't that terrible? We have a story out from the Met Gala. Let's take a look at this special guest of honor, uninvited, of course, guest of honor who showed up at the Met Gala. You see it? You have to go full screen. Oh my God, it's going to be on Getty. Oh. That was, for those of you who were just listening, that was a cockroach who showed up at the Met Gala, which is terrible. But you know what else is terrible? The fact that the Met Gala decided to honor Karl Lagerfeld, the designer, 
He's a pretty controversial figure. I'm just going to run through some of the things he said during his life. He called Adele a little too fat. He said Kate Middletown's sister, Pippa, uh, he said of her, I don't like the sister's face. She should only show her back. He said about the singer Seal, I am no dermatologist, but I wouldn't want his skin. Mine looks better than his. His is covered in craters. He said, quote, no one wants to see curvy women. He also complained, you've got fat mothers with their bags of chips sitting in front of the television and saying that thin models are ugly. He said, the hole in social security is also due to all the diseases caught by people who are too fat. He criticized German Prime Minister Angela Merkel for letting in Syrian refugees, saying you cannot kill millions of Jews and then take in millions of their worst enemies afterwards. He had this to say about the Me Too movement. If you don't want your pants pulled about, don't become a model. Just join a nunnery. There will always be a place for you in the convent. Jeez. And so all these people at the Met Gala are showing up to honor him. That was the theme of of the night. And this is my favorite. Uh, This is Jared Leto dressed up as Carl Lagerfeld's cat. Yeah. So there it is. Jared Leto dressed up as a cat that apparently belonged to Carl Lagerfeld. And the comedian Sam Marill comments. He says this. These people need writers. <laughs> it's true. That's pretty funny. Yeah, listen, uh, if you are a liberal Hollywood star and you feel the need to honor a uh, you know racist, xenophobe, uh, fatphobic guy like uh, Karl Lagerfeld, hey, you know, uh, they really pulled out all the stops. They did, yeah. Their hypocrisy never fails to uh, impress. So yeah. great job, Hollywood. And uh, thank you for another entertaining year of the Mac. Gala. I mean, th- these are really funny. I mean, you know, yeah, they as, are. as off-putting as it is, it's pretty entertaining. Yeah. We have a great guest to bring you on today's show. Very excited to have him coming back to the show. His name is Bronco Marchatich. He is a Jacobin Magazine staff writer and the author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. And we're going to talk about uh, Biden's re-election bid and how Democrats, including progressives, are lining up to support him already. We're going to talk about The proxy war in Ukraine, where Russia has just accused Ukraine of attacking the Kremlin with drones. And we're going to get into a fiery debate about Tucker Carlson. Should Tucker Carlson's anti-war views on Ukraine, should those be praised or not? Or is it all just a cover for Tucker Carlson's uh, avowed anti-China animus? Uh, What's the answer? We're going to get into it in this week's interview with Bronco Marchantino. Welcome back, Bronco. So glad to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So as we're talking, this is the breaking news. The Kremlin is claiming that they thwarted a drone attack on the Kremlin, which they say came from Ukraine. And we have a little video of this incident. So there it is. The Kremlin says it was two drones that tried to attack Putin's uh, residence in Moscow. They're blaming this on Ukraine. Zelensky has denied any responsibility for this. So it's very early and uh, we're not sure what to make of of who is responsible. But Bronco, just w- what's your initial reaction to this news? I mean, it's, it's another reminder of how the longer this thing goes, the the more chances pile up for this to just go completely out of hand. Um, it, it, I mean, if it was Ukraine, we don't know. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was, but we don't know yet. Um, but certainly it does 
remind me of all the, the, the times that, that we know for a fact Ukraine has, you know, struck within Russia or, or within what Russia considers its territory in ways that I would say uh, were both kind of pointless militarily uh, and incredibly reckless because all they did was sort of um, uh, uh, provoke uh, uh, an even worse reaction. I mean, we'll see what happens, you know, what, what Moscow does with this. Um, but I mean, I, you know, examples come to mind, the, the bombing of the Kerch Strait Bridge, the assassination of, uh, Alexander Dugan's daughter. Um, there was a terrorist attack in, in Moscow against a, a, a pro-Russian propagandist, uh, whatever it was a month or two ago. Um, all these attacks, uh, uh, you know, again, like I said, they're, they're not going to achieve anything militarily. Um, but, but I think they, they will have an effect of both hardening, both, I think, Russian public opinion and and the the thoughts of, of uh, Russian you know, policymakers and Putin himself, uh, and just make everything a little a little harder. It's not there's no moral uh, uh, quandary here, you know, in terms of yeah, of course, um, you know, Ukraine is being attacked. It has you know the right to to strike back, but um, it's just you know uh, I don't think it makes a lot of sense, um, and I think it's just going to potentially inflame things to a point that that is bad for not just Ukraine but but all of us. Let's listen to Zelensky's response uh, where he issues a denial. We don't attack Putin or Moscow. Uh, we fight on, on our territory. We are defending our villages and cities. We don't have, you know, enough weapon for this. That's why we don't use it any, anywhere. For, for us, that is the deficit. We, we can't spend it. And we didn't attack Putin. We leave it to tribunal. Maybe he's right in his denial that this wasn't them. But I don't buy his excuse here because he says we don't attack Putin. We don't attack Moscow. We don't have the weapons. Well, they have uh, before. They've, they have at least struck targets inside of Russia. And there was that report uh, based on the Pentagon leaks that the U.S. had to convince Ukraine not to attack Moscow on the anniversary of the invasion. So if, and if that leak is true, then that would undermine Zelensky's claim here that they don't launch attacks like this. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, I just gave you a list of examples where they have done exactly that. And I mean, in the uh, certainly in the, the, the Dugan example, um, the, the U.S. later said, you know, I mean, this is what they said to the papers, but but to take them at their word, they said they had no idea that this was happening and that, you know, the, the, the Ukrainian uh, military, the Ukrainian government kind of um, did this behind their backs. So the idea that they would do something like this and then the U.S. would not be uh, and do it against uh, U.S. policymakers uh, wishes is not really out of the question. But, you know, yeah, it remains to be seen. Like, we'll have to wait and see what happens and what evidence is produced that, that actually ties um, Ukraine to this. Kiev Post uh, tweeted, Ukrainian Postal Service announced the launch of a new stamp right after the attack on the Kremlin. And if you see, there's a an image of that uh, new stamp, which has an image of uh, the Kremlin on fire. <laughs> well, uh, I've not seen that. Um, I mean, if the Kiev Post is saying that, then um, that <laughs> puts... Uh, but that makes things very different. I mean, that suggests that this very much was a Ukrainian attack, as, as Russia is claiming. I mean, they did the same thing um, after the Kerch uh, uh, bridge bombing, right. um, where there were commemorative stamps immediately uh, issued. And then I think once the, the whole thing kind of became this huge controversy, 
um, uh, the Ukrainian government kind of said, oh, actually, no, we had nothing to do with this. The, the bombing wasn't our, our doing, which, of course, is begs the question of how they had stamps ready to go um, to, to release moments after the, the attack. And, I mean, the same question you can ask here. So now, you know, I mean, seeing that, that's a very, very different uh, uh, set of circumstances. Although to be, to play devil's advocate, they could just be celebrating it, not saying that they necessar- that Ukraine necessarily did it. But yeah, it is. it's a very quick turnaround for Commander. It is a quick turnaround. Yeah, um, but... that is true. <laughs> that impressive is very artwork. True. Yeah, impressive artwork. Yeah. Well, speaking of Russia and Ukraine, uh, one of your many pieces that you've written at Jacobin uh, is about the leaked Pentagon documents and how people are missing the story there. So what is the story that comes that's revealed by the leaked Pentagon documents, especially when it comes to Russia and Ukraine? I mean, there's not really just one story. There's so many, uh, so many different kind of, uh, uh, you know, fairly monumental tidbits that we got. I mean, some of it, you know, people say it's been reported before and it has, but I think now the fact that it comes in the form of official documentation from, you know, top secret documents from the government, um, it confirms what, what had just sort of been reported here and there. And, and, and I think also brought a lot more uh, attention to this stuff. So, you know, I think one of the top line, uh, revelations was the fact that, you know, despite the fact that Joe Biden said really early in the war, we're not going to send, uh, U.S. troops into this war. We're not going to have boots in the ground. It turns out that there are boots in the ground. There's, there's uh, U.S. and other NATO special forces personnel that are in uh, uh, Ukraine doing something. I mean, the Biden administration says that they're just guarding the embassy. Maybe that's true. The Biden administration also said that the leak had been done by Russia. So, uh, you know, I mean, I think we can't really take their word on that. Another major revelation, there was uh, last year um, uh, a bit of a uh, a run-in between a, a Russian and a British plane um, that caused some alarm. The the British Defense Secretary went to Washington on this very kind of um, sudden and urgent trip, and they were saying, you know, the, the, don't worry, this is no, no cause for alarm, but this is just, you know, we have to talk about war stuff. Um, it turns out uh, uh, we know from these documents that that actually is a really serious incident, and in fact, a, a Russian plane fired at a um, a NATO spy plane, a British spy plane, um, because the pilot had misunderstood the instructions he was getting from the ground. Um, and the only reason that uh, the, this British plane was not shot down and, and a bunch of NATO personnel weren't killed, potentially triggering uh, a third world war, is just because the, the, the plane malfunctioned, the missile didn't fire properly, and uh, you know, humanity escaped by the skin of its teeth. Um, that's, that's another one. I mean, the, the extent of, I think, U.S. spying, um, in the world, not just on enemies, but also on allies like South Korea and other nations, uh, the UN Secretary General. Again, this was something that we knew from the Snowden revelations, but it still causes quite a, quite a stir, as you can imagine. Definitely it did in South Korea. Um, and, uh, it especially is kind of ironic coming in the, in the wake of, I think, you know, one, one, one month or two months after the Chinese, Spy balloon brouhaha, um, where you know the, the the most sort of apocalyptic and over the top language was used to describe this um, uh, uh, spy balloon and what it was doing, um, and then you know it turns out <laughs> the US isn't just sending spy balloons to other countries; it's actually directly tapping the phones of, of leaders. Uh, I mean, you know, it, you could go down the list. I mean, we we talked about um, uh, these revelations that Ukraine wanted to strike within US uh, 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 Russian territory. Um, there were, there were, 
the fact that the U.S. officials apparently have been completely misleading the public about their predictions uh, of, of the Ukrainian war effort and the analysis and the assessment of the Ukrainian war effort, that it's way more pessimistic uh, than they're letting on in public. That's a major thing. I mean, yeah, there was a lot yeah. and there's still stuff coming out. Let's go to an example of that. This is Lloyd Austin testifying before the Senate in late March. With, re- with regard to your optimism about Ukraine having the upper hand, that is what you told me yesterday. It, it is. And I, uh, what I was about to say, Senator, is that uh, Ukrainians have inflicted significant casualties uh, on, uh, on the Russians, and they have depleted their, uh, their inventory of uh, armored vehicles in a way that no one would have ever imagined. And so now we see Russia reaching for T-54s and T-55 tanks because of the level of damage that the Ukrainians have inflicted on them. And we have, uh, in the meantime, been... And reaching, reaching for those tanks uh, demonstrates what to you, sir? It, it demonstrates that uh, their capability is waning. And uh, it, we've, we've uh, continued uh, to witness uh, them be challenged in, uh, with uh, artillery munitions... Uh, and other things, and they're reaching out to Iran, they're reaching out to, uh, to North Korea. Uh, so uh, I, I think, you know, we'll see an, an, an increase in the fighting in the spring as uh, conditions for maneuver improve. And uh, based upon the, the things that we've done and continue to do, I think uh, Ukraine will have a real good chance. Do you, do you believe? So that's Lloyd Austin. He says that Ukraine has a real good chance in its spring offensive. And now we know that privately the Pentagon doesn't believe that. You know, the leaks have shown that at best the U.S. assesses that Ukraine will make modest territorial gains. And that's at best. So, yeah, talk to us about that. This this contrast between what we've been told publicly and what is acknowledged privately via these leaks. Yeah, for sure. I mean, by the way, uh, I don't know if he was under oath there, but isn't it um, illegal to uh, mislead Congress? Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. Stacey I mean, not, Plaskett, the, not that that. Stacey Plaskett should threaten to arrest him. Right, yeah. Matt Taibbi's uh, cellmate. <laughs> well, we, we know perjury doesn't apply to, uh, you know, high-level U.S. officials. Right. Uh, it's, uh, like James Clapper. Uh, right. it's, only, it's only to journalists, I guess. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's part of, part of the whole thing here is that, uh, and Paul have shown this that if Americans believe that Ukraine is winning, quote unquote, you know, winning and doing well militarily, they're more likely to support sending further military aid. And actually, it's paradoxically, they're less likely to support it um, across parties uh, if they perceive that Ukraine is actually not doing very well. So there's a, um, a real impetus to, to, you know, so they can keep sending weapons and, and, and other military aid uh, to the country to, to give this very rosy prediction. And I mean, also, you know, you have to remember that the Biden administration reportedly is split. There's some people in the Biden administration who uh, favor uh, a, a negotiated settlement as soon as possible. We've seen that with some of uh, Mark Milley's comments, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's, he, he came out and, and said he thinks that they should move to peace talks and was savage for it. Um, and, you know, there's other people who are, who are taking a much harder line in public and reportedly in private. Um, and so for those people who, who want the war to, you know, to go on uh, for, you know, either as long as possible or even, you know, just a little bit longer to inflict a little more damage um, or maybe even to save save face somewhat um, in this kind of difficult uh, situation that the West has found itself involved in now. Um, for them, it serves a purpose of kind of to, to, to 
play up Ukrainian military success. Um, and, and, you know, at the same time to, to, uh, not give the public any inkling that actually, Hey, it might actually be good for the country. It might actually be better for the, the people of this, you know, ravaged war torn country that, that we constantly publicly claim that we're acting, you know, on, on their, uh, in their best interests, that maybe it's better for them for the war to end, even if they end up losing territory. Because, you know, uh, maybe I'm just crazy here, but I think uh, human lives are a lot more important than a patch of land somewhere. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, interest in kind of presenting this uh, very sunny uh, picture to the public. I think. And how would you describe the media's focus in this story? I mean, they're not focusing on the revelations. What are they focusing on? It's it's the same thing every time there's a there's a leak, a, a, an embarrassing or politically inconvenient or, or damaging even politically damaging leak. Uh, uh, they end up talking about the leaker, whether the leaker is a good or bad person, are they a hero, are they a traitor, so on and so forth. Their psychological makeup, their motivations, everything but the actual substance of leaks. I mean, yeah, we saw this as well during the uh, uh, the Twitter file stuff as well, where there was a lot of pretty important revelations in, in my view uh, in the Twitter files. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, if you look at it objectively in, in almost anyone's view, they were very important. But then all of the discussion came out to be about, oh, is this helping or hurting Elon Musk? Is this part of Elon Musk's plan? What about the reporters who are showing us screenshots of all these documents? Are they good or bad people politically? Uh, what do they want to do? So on and so forth. Um, and you can go down the list through history. It's, this is this is every time what happens it happened with Snowden. Is Snowden a hero or a traitor? Is he a Russian or Chinese spy? Why is he doing this? Uh, 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 happened with, with uh, Chelsea Manning, and you know there was so much focus on on on, on her uh, psychological state and and why you know that the, this leak was actually motivated by by her own uh, internal turmoil instead of you know any sort of. Um, uh, whistleblowing motivation happened with Ellsberg. Uh, I mean, yeah, you, you could just go on and on. Assange, of course, Assange has been uh, highly personally demonized. It's it's always a way to, to not talk about the actual substance of what they've disclosed. And the substance is always incredibly explosive and actually very interesting, um, as interesting as it is, uh, you know, pretty uh, humiliating or, or damaging to the people in power. Yeah. And what do you think um, are the most important revelations from the Twitter files? I mean, to me, it's the extent that the FBI uh, was involved in, in uh, telling Twitter and informing it what to censor. And, and the, the fact that, that uh, the, the Twitter executives themselves were, were quite open saying that, that they didn't find this kind of massive sprawling uh, foreign influence operation that we have been told for years was going on. It's been an excuse to basically uh, increase the amount of censorship going on in social media and the internet more generally. Um, they, they couldn't find evidence of this stuff, but they were really honestly pressured by the FBI to do it. The fact that there were agencies, not just, not just the FBI, but the CIA uh, was sitting in on meetings, um, which is legally incredibly questionable, uh, that the NSA was was apparently involved in some of these meetings. Also legally questionable. Uh, the DHS, uh, which has, you know, it's a giant sprawling uh, uh, government department that does all manner of things, but the DHS has been involved in a number of recent scandals from its you know, massive, um, legally dubious collection of, of people's, per Americans' personal data and its surveillance of, you know, protesters and journalists and so on and so forth to, to you know, a whole 
heap of other stuff that, that I, you know, be too long to go into. That's really uh, alarming to me. I mean, I think anyone who knows a history of, of any of these agencies, um, I don't think that they would be so kind of sanguine about, you know, some of these revelations. Um, and also, by the way, it wasn't just conservative um, people that were being censored. I mean, uh, I think the Twitter file showed very clearly that there were also left-leaning accounts that were targeted. You know, I mean, Mataibi pointed out in that one tweet that, you know, among a, a hundreds of Iranian-affiliated accounts, supposedly, um, they threw in, you know, a former Chicago Sun-Times reporter and they, they, they also chucked in a, a truth out, I think, for good measure. Uh, left-leaning website. It has nothing to do with Iran. So, yeah, uh, all pretty, pretty alarming stuff. And consortium news, and also we know from the latest Twitter files that uh, Jill Stein was put on a list mm-hmm. of Russia accounts as well yeah. as WikiLeaks. Yeah, that, I mean, also you know you could talk about the, the the White House apparently pressuring Twitter to censor particular accounts, not accounts that I have any particular sympathy for, but I don't want any president to be ordering you know, uh, uh, Twitter to, to get rid of one account or not. I mean, you know, if Trump or some other Republican comes to power, I don't want them having that power. Uh, Adam Schiff, I think, also <laughs> had a personalized list of, of accounts he wanted censored. So and, um, Angus King. I mean, you know, this is all pretty pretty uh, major stuff. Uh, and again, I mean, if, if it was – I think if it was not Biden in the White House, yeah. um, because now everything becomes – every issue – becomes part of this kind of partisan culture war. It's, it's, it's increasingly difficult to actually just talk about issues without filtering them through, you know, whether it hurts or benefits one party or not. I think if it was Trump in the White House and this came out, I mean, this would be a huge deal. And I think a lot of liberals, a lot of Democratic voting people would be, um, uh, uh, would not be sort of making some of the excuses that they made to, to ignore right. this stuff. They call it fascism, I'm sure. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Also, there's a a conflation between thinking that the Twitter files have important revelations in it and liking Elon Musk. In fact, Elon Musk, we now know, uh, as you refer to in your article about the Twitter files at The Nation, he has uh, done, enabled some censorship, especially uh, working with the the government of India, Modi's India. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, well, the, there was a recent report that based on uh, a data that gets sent to the uh, the, the Berkman Klein Center in Harvard that uh, actually uh, government requests for Twitter uh, to take down stuff have, have exploded since Musk came, became uh, CEO. And I think uh, there's only like one instance where Twitter's actually resisted these government requests. So it's actually the censorship has increased more. Um, I mean, there isn't data from what I could see um, on the United States. Uh, and actually, Twitter has stopped um, publishing its transparency reports. They used to, you know, uh, say, I think, you know, monthly or so, or, or every few months, this is how much we're, um, this is how many requests we've gotten, this is how many we've co- complied uh, with, so on and so forth. Um, they've stopped doing that. So, yeah, I mean, the real big question is, number one, I mean, we, we can see that Musk is definitely uh, going along with government requests uh, uh, pretty eagerly to shut stuff down. Um, and, and, you know, we also know that Musk is someone whose uh, many businesses are highly dependent on government contracts, particularly from uh, the Pentagon. So the question is, 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 has he actually stopped some of this stuff or has he, has he stopped all of it? Or has maybe he stopped some stuff and actually is continuing to sort of um, proceed with Twitter's uh, 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 collaboration with the uh, national security state, but he's just not really giving us any public information about it. 
You have a piece called Joe Biden's re-election launch is the depressing starting gun for a bleak campaign season. Announcing his re-election, Joe Biden urged voters to help him finish the job and protect democracy from MAGA extremists. Curiously absent is even the pretense that he'll do anything to make your life better. So in what ways has Biden already failed to make people's lives better? What has he failed to do? That he hasn't. I mean, uh, one big thing that that he could have done is, uh, you know, there's that uh, power that he has through legislation where he can use a, you know, something like a pandemic, a health crisis to expand uh, Medicare temporarily to people. Um, that would have been a great thing to do, you know, while the country was being um, riven by a pandemic. Of course, it's over now, as we know. <laughs> no, no more. No more right. COVID. But, you know, I mean, he could have done that uh, uh, while uh, the issue was live, um, and it would have really made a huge benefit to people. I, I think another thing he could have done is to not um, end the uh, COVID state of emergency. Um, and that's not because I have any, you know, <laughs> nostalgia or, or longing to, to, you know, be locked in my house again, but because uh, what this emergency actually did was it, it, it um, enabled uh, a host of kind of expansions, basically, of the, of the U.S. welfare state, particularly around uh, more generous food stamps um, and, and uh, basically a, a form of Medicaid expansion. Um, and by ending that emergency and by actually putting it into legislation that they were rolling the stuff back, I mean, they, they've basically, they, they, we're about to watch, you know, progressively over the next few months, 15 million people, I think, um, lose their health insurance because of that. I mean, that's, that's one thing. I mean, I think, um, you know, to me, the fatal mistake of this entire presidency really can be dated to, to just after the, um, the passage of the of the you know the, the stimulus bill and when when they started to uh, look at passing what became the Build Back Better Act, um, which is a huge sprawling bill that was initially meant to be both massive funding for infrastructure and um, a huge expansion of the of the social safety net in the U.S. Um, that was kind of you know written in large part by by Bernie Sanders. Um, that was kind of the centerpiece of Biden's presidency. Um, and I think you can basically trace that the moment that his presidency, at least so far, has unraveled was when he decided to uh, to split that bill into two and say, well, actually, I'm going to take the infrastructure part and I'm going to because I want to be able to prove to people that I um, can still work with Republicans. The Republicans are great and that we can, you know, at the end of the day, we can do whatever, you know, anything in the world is if, we, if we do it together and I can get, you know, make people believe in bipartisanship again. Um, so he split that, and then that's the part that actually passed because it got any sort of Republican uh, and and conservative Democratic buy-in. Um, the the social safety net stuff, you know, it, it ended up withering on the vine, and, and now it doesn't even seem like Biden, you know, is, is, has any inclination to bring it back. I would have thought, you know, maybe if you were running for president and you wanted people to have a reason to, you know, sit in a stand in line for, for hours and hours to vote for you, you might tell them, hey, vote for me. And then he keeps saying, finish the job. What does that mean? Is the, are you going to pass the legislation that, that died? Or, or what, what does it actually mean specifically? It does not seem like that. that is it. Um, the only thing I've seen from his campaign uh, uh, pitch so far is just, look how bad the Republicans are, look how bad Trump is. Do you really want this for another four years? Vote for me. I'm not that bad. Um, not exactly... A particularly inspiring pitch. So you also, Bronco, have a piece about 
Tucker Carlson. It's uh, it's called Tucker Carlson isn't an anti-imperialist. He's a rabid China hawk. Tucker Carlson can't be credited for dissenting against U.S. war fever when he spent years on his Fox News show stoking major tensions with China. So tell us about this piece, why you wrote it and what you're saying. I mean, I just saw after Tucker Carlson's firing, there was um, a lot of kind of, I, I looked at this compact magazine piece in there, you know, that kind of played up Tucker Carlson's heterodox views on, on foreign policy and, and you know, saying actually he was this kind of brave populist truth teller. And I have not really been convinced by that argument for a long time. Certainly on domestic issues, Carlson, if you actually look past some of the kind of populist window dressing he applies and, and you know, some of the odd, you know, reference to working class people and elites and so on and so forth. Officially, you look at where he stands on issues like Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, or, you know, the expanded unemployment insurance that, that was um, a real lifeline of people in 2021 and so on and so forth. Um, he's actually against all those things. Um, and I found, you know, in foreign policy, look, I'm not saying that he didn't have uh, uh certain views that, that I think actually were important to inject into the debate because I think I think he did regardless of his motivations um, but I think the uh, impulse to kind of paint him as because you know he he had a uh, heterodox stance in the Ukraine war dissented from US policy in the Ukraine war um, that sort of that that you know makes him a kind of uh, uh, anti-war voice as I think uh, wrong uh, I mean if you look at, at the, the China stuff I focus on particular because while I could have kind of gone to a bunch of other stuff, you know, his, his um, attacks on the Iran deal or, you know, uh, uh, talking about, you know, sending troops uh, to the Mexican border most recently and, and other things. I mean, I think that the China stuff is the most alarming thing because if you uh, hate or are critical of U.S. policy towards Russia and Ukraine because of the, you know, monumental uh, – risk involved in there and the, and the amount of destruction that could happen and, and the amount of ruin it could bring to just people's lives, not just in those countries, but but in the United States as well and the rest of the world. I mean, all of that applies to China um, and a US-China conflict. In fact, if anything, it, it, it applies doubly because of the fact that the, the US and China are so uh, economically interlinked. And I mean, China, uh, Carlson spent you know years uh, pushing for the most it was a mirror mirror version of, of, of all the Russiagate stuff on MSNBC. It was the most over-the-top kind of overwrought uh, fear-mongering propaganda about China that it was basically controlling the United States, that, that, that elected officials were in cahoots with Chinese elites, that it was killing Americans, that it, every, it was responsible for every single problem uh, that was plaguing the United States domestically, that it was this grave threat and enemy that, that had to be confronted, that the military and even intelligence agencies had to be kind of built up to be able to fight it, so on and so forth. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I think it, it's, it was ultimately, uh, you know, uh, it's disappointing that there's no voice in cable news that will have any sort of dissent on, on things like, uh, U.S. policy towards Ukraine, but I also think you know that that we should be you know wary of of you know going in the opposite direction and now saying, oh, actually, you know, Tucker Carlson is this great anti-war voice because he actually, if anything, drove uh, it was a major voice actually in driving this this um, conflict that could be you know just as if not more disastrous than what we're seeing in uh, in Ukraine right now. I have a slightly different take, although I agree he pushed some insane stuff about China, uh, and he did drum up um 
you know, animus toward China in the same way that like Democrats and MSNBC host pushed Russiagate media. So I, I think that's a fair analog between Chinagate on Tucker show and Russiagate on MSNBC. The one difference, though, is he did bring on people who disagreed with him, whereas on MSNBC, there was zero dissent toward Russiagate, whereas on Tucker show, you could hear people like Jimmy Dore saying China is not your enemy. The military industrial complex is. Uh, and even during, you know, when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, he was critical of of that. And I and what I thought was a constructive way. And he he uh, he basically said, if I remember correctly, he opposed any kind of war with China over Taiwan, even though I, I think you can fairly argue he was like stoking uh, some of that uh, jingoism around, you know, that would encourage war with China. He did ultimately, I think, when push came to shove, come out and oppose it in ways, again, that I never would see on MSNBC, people saying, you know, we should not be in this proxy war with with Russia. So I don't mean to minimize all of his, um, you know, anti-China hysteria that he pushed. And, you know, that he had guests on with, there was that guest who said we should be sitting, we, we need a leader who will sit <laughs> on a throne of Chinese skulls. So voices like that, he would air. And I don't want to downplay that. But I guess where I think he differs is that he did have on dissenting voices. He himself occasionally, uh, you know, dissented from promoting war with China over Taiwan. And on something really, really important like Ukraine, he was consistently airing anti-war voices. And whatever, as you, you know, his own, his own motivations are, are not ones that I share. But it's just true that on this existential issue of Ukraine, he did set himself apart. And also on issues like Syria, where, you know, there was a very expensive, disastrous, dirty war. He was the only place to allow on, on, on dissenting voices on that. And I, I just, my, my problem is because Syria gets so often ignored and because it's been so normalized that, you know, our bipartisan establishment supports the Ukraine proxy war. I feel like Tucker's role there in featuring those anti-war perspectives gets downplayed. And I think that's a mistake. Part of the reason why I wrote this as well, by the way, is, is when Carson was fired, I looked, there was not a single criticism of his China coverage, which was not a minor part of his programming. Again, it was not just one or two segments here and there. It was a constant stream for years and years and years. And it was, in, like I said, in the most kind of over-the-top demonizing way and no one had any criticism i i looked a few days ago and my piece is still the only thing if you look up Tucker carson in china uh my piece is still the only thing criticizing him every every other link that comes up is actually just carson's uh, various uh, propaganda <laughs> uh pushing for you know the conflict with china and to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was a great discussion with Bronco Marchatich. And I got to say, you're definitely going to want to become, if you're not already, Substack subscribers, because that debate is good. It gets good. It's mostly between Aaron and Bronco, but I throw in some some uh, some some gems, some yeah, nuggets. Well, like we got into it too, Katie. It was yeah. Me against Bronco, and then and then you and I had a little bit of an exchange too. Wow, it's, yeah. sparks were sparks were flying. Yeah, very civil sparks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, as spicy as you could get while all being able to have drinks together. Civil sparks. Civil sparks. Yeah, that should that be our be album. 
<laughs> that could be the new name of the show. Maybe we'll change it right now. <laughs> Useful one, Civil Sparks. Civil yeah. Sparks. Yeah. It's actually like not a bad name for a debate show, Civil Sparks. Yeah. Just really yeah, I like it. championing civility in debate, which is really what we're all about. Yeah. To see those Civil Sparks fly, just go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com where you get the extended interviews like today's with Bronco and all kinds of other bonus content. Like Thursday Throwdown, where you right. get to see us react to uh, midweek media clips. It's your, we like to call it your midweek dose of media madness. Flows off the tongue. Rolls <laughs> off the tongue. Rolls off the tongue, yes. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 